Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you for the invitation to, uh, to share this morning. And some of you know, but most of you probably don't know, I was a student here in the 90s, sat in those same chairs. Maybe they're the exact same chairs, actually. So, <laughs> yes, yeah. So I sat there at the back and, uh, and thought about many things while I was in chapel. But uh, thank you for being here, taking the time out to be here. Uh, it's exciting to return to this area. I pastored in Windsor, Nova Scotia. My dad pastored in South Rodden and in Yarmouth County. And so I've got a lot of roots in the Maritimes. Former professors here, Alison Trites, Dr. Alison Trites. And it was a privilege to uh, be in your class and learn much about the New Testament. A little scary speaking on the New Testament, having you in the, in the room, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not going to focus on exegesis. So I think I'm going to be safe. So, so um, you, you invited a church historian to speak. And so you know you're going to get church history. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, let me begin. Um, okay. And so here we are. Uh, you can see the title back for a future Irish saints in a collapsing world. Uh, Galadriel. So, you know, Prime, she's got the new series out and all that. She was a royal elf of the woods of Lothlorien and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And so I'm not sold on the new series yet, but we'll see how it develops. Um, but she said in the original, uh, the world has changed. I see it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. Now, those of us who are older uh, know how things are different. Things have changed. Uh, even the younger among us uh, have seen rapid social changes that reflect the significant shifts in our culture. We are in what some coin a post-Christendom culture. The, 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 the Christianity, the Canada of the 50s and 60s and 70s um, is no longer. Things are rapidly changing. And, and we can smell it in the air. It's not the same. It's, it's not the same world that we once had. And it can be discouraging to see such loss. And one can easily be overwhelmed or filled with despair with the task ahead. It may seem too daunting. How do we deal with dramatic change? And so what is a way forward? Well, I'm proposing that uh, basically we look back for a future. Um, Hebrews 11.4 has this one phrase, even though dead, he still speaks. And of course, you know, all of 11, chapter 11 is filled with this, this, this list of the great saints of the past, those who lived godly lives in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Well, 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 the history of the church continued after Hebrews was written. And I want to focus on hearing the voices of those who came later in the early medieval period. Uh, there's this anonymous medieval saying, it's, yeah, you'll never read that. If you can read that, then um, your eyes are pretty good. The top says, Historia Magistra Vitae. Uh, it's an anonymous saying from the medieval period, history, teacher of life. And it captures the idea that, that we study the history of Christianity 
more than just for more than just getting dates and dead people down in our head and understanding chronology and all that but there's something to be learned when we study the lives of the saints who've come before us and it's it's partly related to this idea of even though dead he still speaks and the author to the hebrews is in hebrews is writing about the example of Cain and Abel and, and, and the faithfulness of Abel, even though dead still speaks to us today. Of course, not through seances and all kinds of weird things, but through example, we, we look at one's life and we hear how to live a godly life. We hear wisdom that speaks into our lives today. And, and this, looking back at the lives of the saints, again, the quote is kind of small, lives of the saints were part and parcel of the spiritual formation of serious Christians from the time of antiquity. For much of Christian history, if you were a serious Christian, you studied the lives of the saints. In fact, you wouldn't be considered a serious Christian if you didn't. Right. In, in, in evangelical circles, often, you know, if you're, you're if you're a serious Christian, you do what you you study the Bible. And of course you do. You study the Bible. But for much of Christian history, if you were a serious Christian, you also studied the lives of those who've come before us, often called uh, saints. And, and so we study the lives of those who've come before us to to hear their voices, to gain insight into how to live today. And again, you invited a church historian to speak. So that's what. Uh, you're going to get. Um, so where do you go when the world falls apart? When you face very difficult cultural shifts and circumstances. What is interesting is that today there's an instinctive return to aspects of monastic life to overcome the shifts and setbacks of the church and society. So a number of different works, and you can see some of the titles here, but, but many. New monasticism, all kinds of different movements. That they instinctively identify that a way forward today is to go back and find out how godly men and women lived in the past, in particular in these monastic communities, and make that relevant, make that meaningful, make that alive and vibrant for today. And so instinctively, they're picking up what the early church or the medieval church knew, that to be a missionary was to be a monk or a nun. And if you're a monk or a nun, that you were very active in missionary work. Um, and so you can read works like The Barbarian Conversion by Richard Fletcher. Uh, there's these mission-sending places, Rome's one, Constantinople another, and, and, and sending into Europe. And of course, you have missionaries in Africa and Asia, but I'm focusing on the West right now because I'm looking at Irish monks. And so account after account of, of monks, nuns being sent out to do missionary work. And here we have narrowing the focus to, to the Irish, how the Irish saved civilization. Now it's a bold claim and you should read the book, you know, with a little bit of, you know, okay, making a huge claim, but, you know, anyone Irish here? I have no Irish background. Okay, so you should be cheering right now. So yeah, this is, these are my people, we saved the world. Um, but there's, there's, the reality is that, that Irish Christianity played an absolutely critical role in, in the midst of horrors and struggles and, and difficulties and death in, in, in a world we can't even begin to imagine. It was so dark and bleak. And yet they carried on the work of the church in the midst of devastation. And so you can see in this, this uh, map, uh, missionaries not coming from south to north, but missionaries coming from north to south coming from from ireland into europe and so and then from there uh, elsewhere um, 
We need to note that today we target uh, superstars. You know, we, we want superstars to be converts and <clears throat> sports stars, Hollywood uh, stars. It's great. It's like a feather in our cap when, when you know, some prominent person becomes a Christian and, and we, we, we raise them up and say, look. Um, but the ancient church did that as well. Um, German historians have called the church during this period of time the church of the nobility. And this describes an important characteristic of missionary work at the time. Um, from the 7th to the 11th century, a church of the nobility was a church that had patrons, very important patrons, providing money, resources, but also protection. You're living in precarious times, so you need protection. Um, but And over and over again, the strategy was to, first of all, convert uh, the nobility, tribal chiefs, kings, queens. You convert them, and then what happens? Well, the people follow, right? And so, so that's the missionary strategy. Now, the model had shortcomings. Um, as later reformers would point out. But the strength of this emphasis was recognized. Uh, the church was able to encourage, as one author writes, kings to divert colossal, staggering resources into the service of new spiritual ideas. And, and of course, they all also offered protection. Um, because many people did die. And, and we talk about our world falling apart today. Well, when the world falls apart, 1.0, we're in 2.0, or 3.0, or 4.0, whatever. There's been lots of times of disaster. But, but for Christians in the 4th and 5th and 6th and 7th and 8th and 9th centuries in the West, but also in Africa and Asia, but again, my focus is on the West in this discussion, um, horror upon horror. You have the rise of Islam in Islamic invasions. You have uh, Vikings in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries raping and pillaging and stealing and destroying all the way down the west coast of Europe into the Mediterranean, all the way into the Black Sea, all over the place. Um, it's, there's a reason why it's coined the Dark Ages in the West. The Roman Empire's collapsed, and it's a very, very dark time. Um, the work of generations was undone. Western Europe, modern-day Spain, Portugal, France, had been Christianized, but that was undone. Work was undone and undone. There's, I was reading the account of one church destroyed, not once, not twice, but demolished 16 times over generations. They build it, Vikings come, demolish it. Build it again, Vikings come, demolish it. Generation after generation after generation. So, so and this is on a, on a grand scale. That's just one church out of out of hundreds of churches and monasteries. Now, monasteries would have been the banks of the day. And so if you're a Viking and you're looking for pillage, where are you going to go? You're going to go to monasteries, and especially female monasteries. And so you're going, to, you're going to rape, you're going to pillage, you're going to do horrible things. And then the church rebuilds, and then they come again, and then the church rebuilds, and they come again. And this is for two or three centuries. So how do you survive in the midst of your world falling apart? I gave that quote at the beginning about, you know, things being different. Well, things are different today. How do we survive when our world in the West is falling apart? Now, of course, in parts of the world, Christianity is exploding in size and in numbers. Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, hundreds of millions of Christians, the church is growing, blossoming. Um, now, other parts of the world, the church is facing extinction uh, because of persecution. And so, you know, churches in different parts of the world are experiencing different things. But we're in the West, I'm in the West, and so I'm speaking 
to us here in Canada in particular. What do we do when, when our world is falling apart, so to speak? Well, we can go to look at some of the Irish saints and to take that Hebrews 11.4 idea of, of even though dead still speak, ask the question, well, what do we hear? If we were to, to look at their lives, what would we hear? What would they say to us? Well, I'm going to run through a few very quickly lives of the saints and then ask questions. Well, what would they say to us today? Remember, they went, their ministry was not in rosy, happy, clappy times. They're that, no, I have to footnote expre that expression. Happy, clappy comes from my colleague, Steve Studebaker at the seminary, but I love it. So, so I footnote, I didn't plagiarize there. He, he came up with that expression, happy, clappy. Um, um, so St. Patrick, he's one of the three patron saints of, of Ireland. We know of his life through the autobiographical confessions. Um, around 430, the year 430, he was around 16. Uh, Patrick was, was captured in Britain, sold into slavery in Ireland. Uh, he was nominally Christian when he was taken into slavery, but during his time in slavery, his faith became vital uh, for him. And after six years of being a slave, he escaped to, to Gaul, modern-day France, and then he was back in Britain. And when he was in Britain, he received a call to be a missionary. I had a vision in my dreams of a man who seemed to come from Ireland and call him to come back to Ireland, to go back to the people that had enslaved him. He prepared, consecrated a bishop, went off to Ireland in around 460. And he spent the rest of his life in Ireland. He traveled widely, was quite successful at making converts. He baptized thousands. His strategy was to go to tribal chiefs, kings, queens. The logic was, if they became a Christian, so too would the people. Uh, once a few converts had been made, then he um, ordained someone as a bishop, a priest, um, or a monk. Gave them a, a list of Christian doctrine and a list of rules, and then he moved on to the next community and, and rebooted the process, community to community to community. Um, his significance, well, the church became firmly established in Ireland in the northwest and east, not so much in the south, and established bishops throughout. The evangelization of Europe uh, was greatly assisted in subsequent generations by the literally hundreds of Irish monks who followed the example of Patrick. Patrick was a monk, but he was a missionary-oriented one. And his converts and generations, um, that, and generations that followed set off to Britain and the continent to spread the faith. Uh, and this was significant because uh, in the lifetime of Patrick, the Roman Empire was withdrawing from Britain, was withdrawing from Western Europe. It was actually collapsing. And so now you've got no protection. You've got no governing authority to provide some kind of protection. And barbarian, pagan barbarians, as they were understood, were sweeping into the Angles, the Saxons, and, and others were invading, and then later would be the Vikings. But um, important to recognize his contribution. Contribution. St. Bridget, uh, another one of the three patron saints of Ireland. A great deal of uncertainty about the details of her life. For in her case, it is hard to separate pagan folklore and Christian hagiography. But church tradition says that her mother had been baptized by St. Patrick. So, so here's the St. Patrick connection. She entered into a religious order, eventually founded a monastic community, and she was responsible for founding female religious orders in Ireland. And, and she also started one for men. And her position as abbess of Kildare remained after her death. She was very powerful in her day, and that office remained powerful in subsequent generations. Um, she was renowned for her piety, 
and watchfulness for those in her care. She was famous for miracles and for her generosity to the poor. And this is a Baptist school, but I'll still say it. She was most appreciated for her, for one miracle of turning water into beer. And so she was dearly loved for that. So, so there you go. So students loved her, I guess. But she started a school of art leading to the creation of the Book of Kildare, an illuminated manuscript destroyed in the Reformation. So she's another figure that we could, we could listen to and, and hear her. Uh, St. Columba, one of uh, the three patron saints of Ireland. So I've just run through the three patron saints of Ireland. One of the greatest of the monastic leaders. Born in Northern Ireland, uh, one of 12 students known as the 12 Apostles of Ireland. And here's a little sidebar. There were students who studied under the teaching of St. Finian. So we're, we're here a little sidebar. At the monastic school, Clonard Abbey. And he, Finian was a rock star professor. Uh, for this, The school had up to 3,000 students at a time longing to hear his captivating and insightful lectures. In the words of Alvin Butler, he was, quote, excellently qualified by sanctity, and sacred learning to restore the spirit of religion among his countrymen, uh, which had begun to decay. Like a loud trumpet sounding from heaven, he roused the sloth and insensibility of the lukewarm and softened the hearts that were most hardened and had long been immersed in worldly business and pleasure. And his students, those thousands of students, uh, left to spread the gospel, build churches and establish monasteries and so on. And the impact in Ireland and the surrounding regions was striking under the teaching of Finian. Back to St. Columba. He was one of the most famous students of Finian. In fact, he became one of the 12 apostles of Ireland. And, and so um, very critical in, in, uh, in Irish and then of course, subsequent history of Scotland and England and parts of Europe. He and his follow followers established a number of communities monastic communities, the most important and well-known being the monastery on the island of Iona. You can, it's hard to see, but it's a little dot there on the northeast corner of Ireland. And that became a major mission sending center for generations. And his ministry to Scotland was marked by dramatic miracles and effective evangelism and what we today call church planting. Another saint not on the list of, uh, oh, the other one was uh, St. Columbanus. He traveled all the way to Italy. I'm going to skip over him. Um, but there were others as well. St. Queen Bertha, St. Frideswide, uh, St. Boniface, and many other very famous Irish missionaries carrying on this work. Um, so there, those are those dates and dead people. That's, that's, that's the raw data on these people. And, but this isn't the end, right? Now we listen to them. What, what do we what would they be saying to us if they could speak to us? Well, we can't talk to them now, but we can hear um, the example of their lives. And just as, you know, Abel, even though uh, dead by faith still speaks, even though these Irish monks and nuns are dead, they still speak to us. What are they saying to us? Well, five things they're saying to us. First of all, theological education matters. Those people, I'm, I'm preaching to the, to the choir here, right? You're here, right? Um, those people, those monks and nuns were well-versed in the scriptures. They understood the importance of theological education. Um, in, in many cases, you're required to memorize most of the New Testament, if not all of the New Testament. 
or more um, Old Testament and so on and so forth. One student at one time in one monastery was mocked and ridiculed by his peers because he had only half of Matthew memorized. <laughs> what a loser, only half of Matthew, right? Like, I've got all of Matthew, right? Like, but that the expectation is so high. What you learn is so critical. Um, and what you do in seminary matters. And, 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 and who you hang out with at seminary matters. And how you apply yourself in your studies matters. And so when you look at the lives of these saints uh, from the past, um, it mattered. Learning, education, studying, applying yourself to the best of your ability um, mattered. And so if we listen, we listen carefully, theological education matters. Secondly, spiritual disciplines are key. Reflecting on the discipline of the Irish church at that time, um, one author writes, it is a large and brilliant picture of a civilization that was to be the nursing ground of the higher Christian one that followed. We see it whence in the natural order, the Irish monk derived those heroic qualities of endurance, which made him the Christian pioneer of Western Europe and which enabled him to adopt a rule so strict that it had to be relaxed to suit his weaker brethren on the continent. Um, discipline, discipline lies. Remember, these monks are carrying out their ministry in terrible times, horrible times. Ours would be a golden age here in the West. The West would be a golden age for them in terms of peace and security and good government and, and, and protection and all those kinds of things. How are you gonna make it in those tough times? You need to be disciplined, spiritual disciplines. What a seminary can do is help you think and learn. What a seminary cannot do is to make you holy, to make you disciplined in your private life. That's a commitment that we all must apply to ourselves. Um, they survived and thrived because they chose a different way. They were radically committed to the monastic life or one close to it. And of course, the, the three vows of the monastic life were what? A vow of Poverty, ch chastity, and obedience. Yes. Okay. So poverty, chastity, and obedience. And you're saying, Gord, we're not monks. We're not nuns. What are you talking about? What's the relevance of, of making that kind of discipline? Well, first of all, um, the, the disciplines aren't the point. The disciplines are, are there to allow for a focus on a relationship with Jesus unencumbered by the weight of sins that so easily entangle and enslave us. And so it's to free us up to serve. Um, but you say poverty, chastity, obedience. I'm married. What, what, you can't, well, how does this relate? Well, poverty. You know, if we, we take a vow of poverty um, different from them, but this is sort of Protestant appropriation of a vow of poverty, it, it makes us look at materialism differently. Right? How we use our resources differently. If we make a vow, sort of a Protestant vow of poverty, we, we rethink materialism. A vow, a Protestant vow of chastity. Well, for some, that may mean um, living a chaste life, a, a vow of virginity, celibacy, all the life. But for others, it may be a commitment to rigorous sexual purity in all ways, but a vow of chastity, to be holy, to be pure in one's life. And, and uh, a vow of obedience. Well, I, I don't have, a, a, I don't have a, uh, an abbot or an abbess. I don't live in a monastery. What does that mean? To submit. You submit to will, your will to God and those who are over you and to submit, to not be arrogant, to not be haughty, to not be all about yourself, but to be a humble servant. And so we can, we can listen to these monks and nuns and say, yeah, theological education matters. They gave so much of their lives for that. But then 
rigorous, rigorous discipline. But what's important is that discipline was in community as well. You can't achieve a, you know, poverty, chastity, and obedience on your own very easily. If you have others in community helping, aiding, assisting, um, it's, it's, I was going to say easier, but the easier is not even the right word because we're not talking about ease here. We're talking about difficulty, struggle. But the only way you're going to make it when the world falls apart is to be disciplined. Third, find and do your calling. Each one of these figures had a clear sense of God's call on their life and then gave up everything to pursue it. Um, everything less is a life of mediocrity. Sorry, anything less is a life of mediocrity and missed opportunity to do what God intended for you to do. Four, love your neighbor. In the midst of all the work of being missionaries, um, there was a care for one's neighbor. St. Patrick, for instance, had not forgotten his experience as a slave. In one letter he wrote, uh, we get a glimpse of a man trying to get soldiers to stop supporting the slave trade. So he acted, he, he, of course, at this time, there's a, there's a Western slave trade active in, in Western Europe. And Patrick was writing, stop the slave trade. And there were actual Christian ministries in Britain and in Western Europe that um, purchased the freedom of Christians who've been taken into slavery. And so Patrick is an advocate for, for those who are suffering under the horrors of slavery. A young Saint Bridget, who I mentioned earlier, found her elderly and ill mother working in the fields and, and took the work upon herself. Here she has this high calling to do all kinds of things, but no, I'm gonna help my mother in the field. Took on the work herself, taking care of cows, churning butter, and then sharing with everyone in the community, with the poor in particular. And her father was upset with her for doing that and even tried to sell her off since she was giving all his stuff away to the poor. It's like, oh, my daughter's gonna bankrupt me. But caring for your neighbor, loving your neighbor, high calling, missionary work, establishing monasteries, all that kind of thing, but don't neglect your neighbor. It's not a matter of preach the gospel or care for those who are suffering. It's a matter of preach the gospel and care for those who are suffering. And fifth and finally, a plan for future generations. They certainly preserve the past. And without their work, much of antiquity, uh, the world of antiquity would have, antiquity would have been lost. But they also invested great energy and resources for the now and for the future. They invested in generational work. Um, that's very hard to do, to think not just of today, but think of the next generation and the next generation and the next generation after. That's very difficult. Um, it's hard in ministry because, of course, the pressure's on now, uh, but they invested in generational work, um, establishing trajectories, establishing precedents, um, and, and building, on or building foundations for future churches and future Christians to carry out their ministry on. Um, and it's hard to identify success when you think that way, though, because we often want success to be immediate. How many people are here? What are we doing? What's the budget? This and that. All those kinds of very pressing and real things. Um, so how do you identify success when you think generationally? But, but it should be a part of what we do in ministries to think generationally, because maybe success, and I'll put that in quotation marks, success, maybe success for you, for us, will be to hold the ground for five generations so that in the sixth generation, there will be a chance to blossom. Like how we understand the future work of the church 
um, is critical in how we invest in that future work. And they did that. They established monasteries and churches and communities with the assumption that that work will carry on into generations. And we need to enlarge the horizons of, of how we view ministry and our participation in ministry. In conclusion, it is easy to lose hope as we look at the changes in society that indicate waning interest in the Christian faith. Just look at the churches in your neighborhood, you know, empty pews, declining revenue, declining numbers, all those kinds of things. It could be easy to lose hope. And it's easy to lose hope when the work of generations has been undone. But these brief little vignettes provide some glimpses of the lives of those who faced unfathomable darkness and hardship. Not doing what they are doing for fame or even to save civilization, to save civilization. They were faithful in the midst of that suffering, faithful in the midst to God's call to carry out missions and to do all the work of the church. They did not know it at the time. Now they weren't necessarily saying we're going to establish Christendom, you know, a thousand years from now. They're just being faithful in their day. Um, their labors would bring about a return of the church. Remember, they're bringing the church back to places where the church had been, was wiped out. Now they're bringing it back. Um, and their labors returned the church and led to the establishment and rooting of the church in lands that would continue for over a thousand years. And let me conclude with this uh, quote here. Not for a thousand years since the Spartan League had perished at the hot gates of Thermopylae had Western civilization been put to such a test or faced such odds. As our story opens at the beginning of the 5th century, oh, this is from the uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization book. Um, as our story opens at the beginning of the 5th century, no one could foresee the coming collapse. But to reasonable men in the second half of the century, surveying the situation of their time, the end was no longer in doubt. Their world was finished. It never occurred to them that the building blocks of their world would be saved by outlandish oddities from a land so marginal that the Romans had not even bothered to conquer it. Sorry, Irish people. Uh, in the midst. <laughs> by men so strange they lived in huts on rocky outcrops and shaved their heads and tortured themselves with fasts and chills and nettle baths. Now my point here is, is not to become strange people who shave our heads and torture ourselves with fasts and chills and nettle baths. That's not the takeaway. Okay? Um, the point is that those who survived and even thrived in the midst of hard times um, those point survived and those people survived and thrived even in hard times and we can too if we listen if we listen carefully to their voices and heed their example there is hope there is hope following in the footsteps of these irish men and women of faith amen thank you for joining us in this acadia divinity college chapel podcast you can follow us on social media Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday.